Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. My guest today is a barrister who specialises in criminal and family law. She's also an author whose new book, In Black and White, A Young Barrister's Story of Race and Class in a Broken Justice System, has already caught the attention of the media and the country's most senior justice, Lord Reed. She tweets under the name Essex Barrister. Hi, Alexandra Wilson. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Lovely to join you. When I did jury duty a few years ago, um, I was sort of scared to death about talking about any of it to anybody. What are the rules governing um, what barristers can can say in a memoir like this? Like, how much do you have to change and, and conceal for it to be kind of okay? <laughs> yeah. So, the, I mean, the main a lot of the cases are in the public domain anyway. In that, when any case that's in the criminal courts, you know, you can go in and watch um, pretty much, apart from youth court cases. So, a lot of that stuff is already out there. In terms of the more confidential stuff, so things that are discussed in conferences or things in the youth court or the family courts, um, it does have to be changed so that the that people can't identify who the person is, is basically the rule. Because of course then, you know, their confidentiality wouldn't be being respected. But providing that anonymization is made, it's okay. And actually to be honest, I think it's good that I mean, I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> but, but I think it's a, um, I think it's a good thing that people are able to, you know, have a bit of an insight into the the, the sort of cases that are going through our courts on a daily basis. Um, because I think until it affects you, or if it ever does, um, a lot of people don't really know what's going on. And yeah, um, part of what I tried to do in writing the in writing my book was to give people a bit more of an insight into how, you know how ordinary, frankly, a lot of my clients are and how anyone can, court, can can get caught up in, you know, the criminal justice system or in the family courts. And I really wanted that to come across. Because So the book, I mean, on, on one level, it does sort of just give people an insight into, um, you know, how the courts operate and the kind of cases that come up and, and all the various factors that can come into, into play. Um, and it's also on another level, of course, your story, and and your sort of anecdote about being mistaken for a defendant three times in one day um, made the news last week. Mm. It got an apology from the head of the court service and mm. a response from Lord Reed, president of the Supreme Court, who who in the sort of same interview said he wanted to see at least one justice of colour on the court before he retires in six mm-hmm. years. Was that the sort of um, reaction you were hoping for? Has it, has it made... Uh, I suppose a bit, you know, a bigger splash than you could have expected. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I of course did not. Anyone who's, you know, follows me on Twitter or <laughs> sees me tweet knows that I tweet about this sort of thing quite regularly. You know, whenever I, I I try and shine a light on some of the, you know, the things that people may not see. So I do tweet if I have certain experiences or if I see certain things, whether positive or negative. You know, a few weeks ago I tweeted about um, for the first time ever seeing, you know, a black judge a black prosecutor, a black probation officer, a black usher, and obviously me, um, all in the same courtroom. You know, so I, I try to balance my tweets and kind of, obviously a lot of them are focused on, you know, diversity and and race and class, um, because those are issues that particularly affect me. But no, I didn't expect it to pick up quite in the way that it did, particularly as, you know, it has happened not only to me, but to many people many times. I think that day, I think the ex- exhaustion and the the upset that I was feeling um, probably really came out in that that sequence of tweets, and as with Twitter, you you know you never know what is going to pick up. Um, but it's it's definitely a positive for me that you know the head of the court service, you know, it's the Supreme Court have been talking about it. You know, for for me, that's a huge deal. In that, hopefully, this brings about some actual change 
it's not much, just my experience that matters here. It's the fact that this is an indication of a much, much bigger systemic issue that we have um, in this in this country, but also, you know, specifically in the courts of overcriminalizing black people. So I'm glad that it's being talked about. Well, you've called for um, anti-racism training in the legal profession. For you personally, have you encountered much blatant racism from lawyers or does it usually take the form of microaggressions, biased assumptions, you know, something, something a little more subtle? It's been a mix to be, to be completely honest. You know, I've had lawyers come up to me and tell me, you know, in the road rooms, and I think I spoke about this in my book, but, you know, like a barrister coming up to me and telling me that he thinks that diversity compromises quality. Um, you know, when a, I didn't know who he was, but B, I was clearly the most <laughs> junior person in the whole robing room um, and the only non-white person. So, you know, things like that do feel quite targeted. Um, you know, other barristers who have said to me that, you know, black people are, are good for business because they keep killing each other. Again, you know, feels very blatantly racist. Jesus. Um, but... Yes, there are also, of course, the microaggressions, um, like the assumptions that people make um, about, you know, who you are in the courtroom. And, you know, people, the sort of microaggressions, I guess, that you, a lot of black people get in a lot of different environments that, you know, people always assume that you're not me personally, but people who are much more senior than me have been assumed to be a lot less senior than they are. Or, you know, the white person's assumed to be the senior person and they've been assumed to be like the assistant or the more junior barrister. Um, and I've seen that happen, you know, even when I've been ob- observing like people more senior to me. Um, so things like that, you know, the more the more unconscious um, biases. So I think it's a mix, if I'm honest. I really do think it's a mix. Because, I mean, obviously one of the obstacles to diversity in the law um, is, at, is at that end. Um, is it like you know who's who's being given who's being given the jobs uh, mm. who's being allowed seniority? But you also mentioned in the book that some of your family members um, worried that sort of becoming a lawyer made you sort of part of a racist system. So at the mm. other end of the scale, you know, is is there that sort of barrier where people who might have the potential uh, to reform it sort of deem it? unreformable and therefore sort of reject it before anybody even you know even but knows yeah absolutely absolutely I think and that's why I try to be you know in in my own personal capacity I try to be as accessible as I can to young people um I try to you know show them that actually you know people like me people like them can can do this job too but also try and be there to answer their questions you know I'm like on social media and stuff like I always do like little Q and A's just to make it a bit more accessible because I do think that actually there are, you know, one of the hardest things with our profession is that from the outside it looks as elite as you can possibly get. You know, people wear like horsehair wigs um and gowns and people are, you know, obviously in court it's a very formal environment, so people are very well spoken. It can be very isolating to and also frankly, like we we we're not as diverse as we should be. You know, so you look on and you see a mostly white profession. We're still male dominated um, and all the other you know traditions I just said. So looking in from the outside, if you're from a, what we call, you know, a non-traditional background and by that not suggesting that, you know, 
tradition should be kept or, or not kept. But, you know, it's just not what's traditionally come to the bar. The people who have not traditionally been well represented at the bar. It can be very daunting, I think. Um, and so I know I try to kind of break down those barriers as much as I can. I know a lot of other barristers do as well. There were so many of us really making an effort to kind of try and break down this this idea that the bar is only for people from a, t- a certain type of background. Um, and that's, I think, what we need to do in order for things to actually change. I think we all have a responsibility to do that. Because also when you went to, to Oxford and it was uh, with help from this programme Target Oxbridge, mm. there seems to be a sort of a similar sort of problem there is that you can, you can, you can get that encouragement and, you know, you've got the talent, you get there and then on arrival, and this is only a few years ago, you said you, you, then you have to sort of face this racism and classism. So it's not just getting through the, the interview. No. It's then the stuff that's there on the other side, which presumably is also kind of uh, can be a deterrent for some people where they think, well, I, why do I want to go there? Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. And I think, do you know, there's one thing encouraging people, but I do think it's also important to respect the fact that like, actually some people might not want to come. Um, and I, I personally, I understand that having been, you know, as you say, you to Oxford too, I completely understand why some people might make the decision that actually they don't want to go through it. All I can do is encourage people to take that step. Um, and I would just never be misleading about what that might involve in that there, there might be difficulties along the way. But realistically, these institutions, the bar, Oxford, they're only going to change if there is a, if there is a real culture shift, you know, and the institutions themselves I can see that progress is being made. Um, like I know, for example, at Oxford, they, there are a lot of schemes now to encourage more people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or state schools. And the bar is getting there. You know, the bar is implementing uh, similar schemes. I know that a lot of chambers have just signed up to a, a new mini pupillage scheme to attract people from less well-represented backgrounds. But ultimately, there does also need to be a culture shift in that the people who are already there, the people who are, you know, going in the masses to Oxford or the at the bar you know they those attitudes need to change because it's those attitudes of those individuals that can really make it a difficult experience for someone who is from a less well represented background and the only way that I think that that real culture shift can happen apart from you know reporting things that are unacceptable is for there to be more diversity because the more of us there are the more of a balance there's going to be it's a it is a tricky one because it's going to require more people putting up with being uncomfortable and being in a space where they might not feel welcome in order for there to be like a, a long-term change. Because there's a, there's an eye-opening uh, bit in the book about the kind of the cost of lack of trust in institutions. And you explain yeah. how, how that can kind of hurt um, defendants of colour because they're more likely to plead, you know, not guilty yeah. and therefore get longer sentences if found guilty. And so yeah. that this kind of, a lack of trust, you know, can lead sometimes, you know, without them knowing why mm. to these to these worse outcomes. Mm. Is that something that you think is a is a real long term project? You know, building building up trust so that I suppose defendants can make better choices when they when they have those chances. That in and of itself is enough reason for the bar to make huge radical changes in terms of like it's it's diversity like that alone should should be putting pressure on every single barrister and every judge in the country to make sure that you know we 
are doing everything we can to promote diversity and inclusion you know at, in our profession the fact that it negatively affects defendants I think we all have a duty to do it I think the problem is is that a there's perhaps not enough research in the area to conclusively compel people to 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 make substantial changes um but also I think the bigger thing is that people are too comfortable with saying that you know these sort of things are take time um for me sometimes that feels like excuse making when people say that you know these changes all you know they take time actually I think that there are already Yes, of course, there there does need to be some of these changes are going to take time, but we all, we have problems that are existing at the moment um, that we can resolve almost immediately. For example, black people are applying um, for more senior positions. In fact, I think it's I think the category that the BSB uses BAME, so it's black and other ethnic minority um, people that are applying for you know more senior positions at the bar, so for to to join the judiciary or to become QC at higher rates um, than white people, but they're still not being accepted in, the, in those proportions. And so we need to work out what's going what's going wrong. Because if, if those applications are going in, what is happening between that, like are those applications not supported in the same way? Because of course, for a lot of these applications, you need to be so- supported by senior members of the judiciary or QCs. Is that the problem? Is, is it that, you know, they've not got the experience that other white barristers have in their position you know we need to identify what the problem is and why BAME people are applying in higher numbers but not getting the same results that is the sort of thing that we need to be looking at and that sort of stuff can be identified pretty quickly that doesn't take years and years and years to unfold and change and there are people there who are at the right position um, for us to make considerable change to like our, our more the more senior end of our profession And some kind of emotional detachment sort of is essential, I think, for you to be able to, for anyone to do this job. Um, but then it also seems to me that, that without obviously some degree of emotion and empathy, then then a lot of time you're not going to sort of build that that trust with clients. Now, is that something that you think gets harder over the years, you know, as you move through the system? Do you find that sort of older barristers are perhaps more prone to be to be too detached because they've got sort of hundreds of cases behind them and, and, and here's just another one. Is it is it something you sort of have to hold on to, that real, you know, that some kind of personal uh, element? I can, you know, obviously I'm still relatively junior um, and have only been here two years. So in my experience, even in just the short time I've been here, um, I can see how people can become, you know, a little more like a, a little bit desensitized to some things because there are certain things that you hear time and time again um and it is important to really remember that actually every single one of these cases like this is someone's life whether it's them being at risk of prison for a week or you know like i said 15 years that is still a, like a huge thing for that person um and you really just have to think of every single case on a case to case basis you can I think the danger is when you start to generalise. Um, and so I'm sure there are, you know, senior barristers who probably have become a bit desensitised. Um, but I also think that there were definitely senior barristers who have managed to retain that that empathy, who have managed to to recognise that every single one of their clients is, a you know, an individual. And, and we are all, as barristers, we're given such a huge responsibility. We are 
responsible for, you know, speaking on behalf of someone else on what often is, you know, one of the most important days of their life, because it's a day where they, they might be at risk of losing their liberty or say, for example, in my family work, losing their children or seeing their children. And so we're given that huge responsibility of being their voice. And for me, that feeling, I don't think will ever go. But every single time I meet with a client, like I know that I have such a big responsibility and that whatever I say and do will affect their life and, and the most important things to them. And I think as long as I remember that, it's, it's actually difficult to become too desensitized because, yeah. And you write about how many defendants, I mean, some quite sort of startling uh, percentages, um, have problems with mental health, how many um, are homeless does your job sort of make you more aware of these sort of systemic failures further up the pipe? You know, you're coming in when you're in no position to sort of to fix those problems. And essentially you're, you're trying to sort of help them at this particular junction. But, you know, in, in, in these personal stories, do you, does that sort of make you more aware of the kind of the domino effect of these sort of failings elsewhere? Absolutely. And I think sometimes it can be quite difficult on a kind of personal level in that you feel that you have come in too late into, you know, the, your intervention is too late and you just have to, you know, it's almost damage limitation rather than being able to to actually resolve the issues that are, are, are existing in someone's life. Um, I think for me, homelessness is a big one. Um, a lot of my clients are homeless and it can be absolutely heartbreaking um when they are turning up to court and you know they they can't even have they haven't even been able to shower that morning or you know they haven't eaten it makes you realize like how much you take for granted yeah I think it can be quite difficult that you know you realize that in the grand scheme of things um that actually court can be the least of someone's worries you know I just I just spoke about how it can be the most important thing in people's lives but it also can be the least of their worries that you know them coming to court is actually they've got to find food or find somewhere to sleep that night um and that there are much greater things at play in their lives again mental health the amount of people amount of my clients that um have some some degree of underlying um, mental health illness or those that actually are diagnosed during criminal proceedings that happens quite a lot as well so quite often them kind of being brought into the criminal justice system will be the first time that those mental health difficulties are picked up on often they'll have like a mental health assessment as part of you know the proceedings um and so that can be really difficult as well just seeing that actually there are a lot of reasons as to why people get caught into the criminal justice system sometimes desperation sometimes because they're they are struggling with their mental health um you know it's not always as black and white as sometimes you know the news would perhaps have you believe um, yeah, I think that's that's one of the most difficult. Um, and I was struck um, on the book jacket, it mentions that Oxford, you researched um, the impact of kind of killings by police in the US. It's obviously mm. been one of the, you know, after after coronavirus, kind of mm. the, the, the biggest story of the year. Yeah. Um, what sort of um, what sort of form did that did, did that research take? Yeah. Um, so so I researched the impact that police shootings had on young people's attitudes to call the police in America. So I was looking at whether there was a difference in young black kids and young Hispanic, young white kids, um, their attitudes to calling the police when they were in danger, essentially, um, based on the fact that p police shootings disproportionately affect 
um, African-Americans. And so a lot of that was primary research. So it was going out and speaking to people. I, I interviewed uh, children of like, it was, you know, sort of late teens, uh, well, mid to late teens. It was across America. So I went to um, quite a few places. So I went to Baltimore. I went to Chicago. I went to um, Florida, Rhode Island, um, New York. So I went to quite a few different places um, and, yeah, interviewed children all over. And, I mean, ultimately, the results were, perhaps unsurprisingly, you know, African-American children were much more reluctant to call the police when they found themselves in in danger, in dangerous situations. A lot of a lot of the research I did was qualitative. So they had to, you know, just give reasons themselves rather than being led, because obviously, as you can imagine. But a lot of a lot of the reasons cited were that why would we call the police? Like you can't trust the police. But if I call the police and I'm the black man, you know, I'm much more likely to end up in danger myself. Um and you know, that research I did in 2015, so five years ago, it's absolutely devastating that, you know, five years later we see the the killing of George Floyd. Sadly, I can't yeah. say I was surprised because, you know, for the last five years, I've, I've been seeing the same thing. I mean, prior to doing my research, the reason I did my research is because there were similar things happening at the time. Um, and I was seeing, course, yeah. and I was seeing that happen. It's just devastating that that's still happening. Um, and I think the world has only just woken up to it. And finally, to, 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 to back to Britain, Pretty Patel the other day uh, made an attack on sort of lefty lawyers, which was sort of echoed by Boris Johnson in, in his conference speech. And she's largely, I think, talking about human rights lawyers. But mm. does it worry you? Do you think there is a sort of an effort to sort of politicise the judiciary and therefore question a lawyer's, you know, motives or, or professionalism once you tag them? Uh, you don't hear so much about right-wing lawyers. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that ultimately, I think that there has been some misunderstanding about what the role, the role of lawyers. Ultimately, our job is to fight for our clients. We are not affiliated with our clients' causes. And that's something that I don't think has come out very clearly um, in a lot of the criticism of lawyers recently. In my defence work, you know, there's there's been many times that I've defended people who are you know, alleged paedophiles, for example, that doesn't mean I agree with paedophilia. Um, our job is to represent our clients to the best of our ability, regardless. In fact, we're, we're ethically obliged to, to represent people we don't agree with. Conflating lawyers and what they, the work that they do with their own personal interests is a very dangerous game. Um, and that's, you know, I think speaking to most lawyers, I think you'll find that there's a, there a lot of their clients they don't agree with. Um, <laughs> right? You know, that's it's not our place to to involve ourselves in our clients' opinions, but or you know, ultimately, on the other hand, to to advocate on behalf of our clients' causes. That's not our job. Like our job is to best represent our clients in court and and also ultimately to protect their rights. That's what we're there for, um, regardless of whether or not we agree. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Alexandra Wilson. Thank you. Thank you for having me so much. In Black and White is published by Endeavour. There's a new Bunker Daily every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday and Friday with a weekly panel edition every Wednesday. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. 
theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. Bunker Daily is a podcast production.